Hello and welcome to episode 13 of Cool Time Life, being released Monday, April 17th, 2017. Do you know the difference between effective work and workaholism? Well, let me ask you this. If you received an email from a client or a customer or a work colleague at 10.30 at night, would you respond to it? Many people would say yes. We have been conditioned to expect emails at any time of day or night, and many of us even crave them. But hold on for a second. Before succumbing to this temptation, before enjoying the sweet feeling of moving this email into the done category, take a moment to think what the other person at the other end might be thinking. Unless this reply is a real lifesaver, like they are stuck on a project and desperately need a reply from you in order to get finished, unless it is something like that, then the email is just another message. But by answering it as and when you do at 10.30 at night, you are sending another message at the same time. And that is that your time does not have great value, that you are willing to give it away to anybody, no questions asked. Or... You are telling the sender that your time and life are so disorganized that you are still working at 10.30 at night. Now, keep in mind in this example that I am using the idea of 10.30 at night in the context of someone whose workday is supposed to be over by 5 or 6 p.m. If you work a job that does have evening hours, then simply roll this analogy around the clock face to another time of the day. What I'm really saying here is, are you replying to emails on your personal time rather than business time? Now think, what does that tell your client or colleague about you? It might not be as impressive as you would like it to be. I, for one, do not want to know that my accountant is working late into the night, especially if it is my file that he or she might be working on. I pay this person good money to do good work, good accurate work, and I do not believe that can be done at 10.30 at night. Therefore, your attempt to demonstrate great customer service and agility by replying outside of work hours might actually backfire, painting you as a workaholic or simply overloaded and disorganized, neither of which does wonders for your reputation. It is so easy to get caught up in your own work and to forget how a customer or colleague perceives it. That's why I am such a proponent of taking breaks and taking time to think. It is not that I am against hard work, in fact I am very much for it. But hard work without sharp purpose is a waste of time and energy and reputation. A customer needs to believe in you, as does your colleague. They need to know that you value your own time and your reputation. It becomes too easy to erode these things through sheer blind busyness. The same goes for workaholism, which is a bad thing. There is a definite distinction between working hard, working overtime, and workaholism. Working hard is the diligent application of energies and talents into tasks that have been properly identified, prioritized, and scheduled, with minimal distraction or disruption. This allows for maximized productivity without upsetting a healthy work balance. Working overtime means putting in a few more hours than you should once in a while. There are, of course, occasions when working overtime does have its rewards, meeting a deadline on a crunch project, for example, or making some extra cash for the holidays. The key issue remains that overtime should be the exception rather than the norm. But workaholism, though, is not about hard work. It's about work addiction, compulsive overwork, compulsive busy work. 
Whereas hard workers do what is needed to get a job done, once it's done, they relax and allow time for family, friends, and reflection. They work long hours on a short-term basis with clear goals. But with workaholics, there's a preoccupation with work, an inability to turn it off. Most workaholics aren't even aware that they've crossed that boundary into inefficiency. Instead, they see themselves as relentless producers, focused on a distant goal that just needs a few more hours of work to complete. The conditions that make workaholism possible are quite easy to see. The modern work ethic says you are what you do. Our portable computers, phones, and internet access make working from anywhere around the clock easier than ever and taps directly into that sense of urgency. There is also the fear factor. The fear of not appearing to be a player. The fear of being left out of the loop. The fear of taking a vacation in case you get replaced. The fear of being part of the next round of downsizing. A combination of personal, technological, and social pressures conspires to create fertile ground for workaholism to flourish. So, what are the signs of a workaholic? For a start, workaholics tend to work long hours, consistently staying late and coming in on weekends and holidays, or working from home on weekends and holidays, even if they don't have any pressing deadlines. They think about work constantly, even when they are not at work. As Dr. Brian Robinson states, the workaholic uses work to fulfill an inner need. They rarely have hobbies, except those that are work-related, such as golf with colleagues, perhaps, and they tend to neglect personal relationships, especially with spouses and children. Now, it's important to distinguish between loving your job and being a workaholic. People can and should love their jobs, but there has to be boundaries between work and life. Workaholics are seldom great team players either, since they have trouble delegating. They enjoy taking care of the task themselves, and they live out this chronic case of the superhero syndrome. Everything must and can only be done by them. In general, workaholics display actions and priorities that are inconsistent with true productivity. That's the surprising component here. Workaholism is an addiction to work for work's sake. There is a tendency to gravitate towards time-consuming tasks and to work the longest hours on the least productive or least practical tasks, since workaholism is an addiction to work and not results. That's the key test to assess with yourself. Is it the work or is it the results that you're focusing on? Workaholics tend to focus on tasks that are immediately visible rather than establishing priorities and focusing on the top-ranked and most important task. There is a great cost to workaholism. Having a workaholic on staff as part of your team should be a source of immediate concern to you, because although they appear as the archetype of busyness, a role model for the rest of the team, in actual fact, the opposite is true. A workaholic environment creates stress and burnout and low morale amongst all staff, since workaholics demand and expect excessive work from subordinates, and that bounces back in the form of sick leave and stress-related absences. It just does not work. Similarly, the adrenaline that fuels much of a workaholic's activities, the actual real literal adrenaline, was never meant to be used that way. It is a compound intended for fast escape, the fight-or-flight reflex. It is... An acid, literally, it is an acid in your bloodstream that over time destroys body cells and blood vessels. Adrenaline is not a healthy substance to live on. If you think that you might be a workaholic, the best thing to do is to aim for the win-win. The pleasure that you derive from working hard is an asset. That is great, but it is essential to make sure that the efforts you undertake are correctly directed.
and that balance is maintained. So here are a few questions for yourself. Number one, is the work I'm doing truly top priority or do I just need to feel busy? Number two, can this work be delegated to someone else? Number three, who will see the payoff of this work? Does it contribute to a key project? Number four, what am I sacrificing? Family? Health? Exercise? Number five, how are my habits affecting my staff or my team? Are they getting frustrated trying to keep up? Is there high turnover and low morale? And finally, how uptight would I get if I went home with all of this stuff still left to do? Workaholism is a personality-based addiction. It's encouraged through the pressures and the demands of business. It is not a substance addiction, but the withdrawal symptoms might be similar. as intense discomfort, frustration, and stress. If you identify yourself as a workaholic, you will need to admit that fact first, and then seek a pattern of change that you can handle. This primarily consists of a tangible project plan and a written collection of balance items like family, friends, and hobbies, and a timeline for change. It is also a condition that is not always taken seriously in the context of the modern global work ethic, at least not until the paramedics have to be called in. The bottom line here is that workaholism is not productivity. It is addiction to the sensation of work. If you love your work, that is great. That is healthy. That's an asset. But as with all of these things, it needs balance, An overbalance simply leads to a fall. And remember, as I started this piece by saying, the perception that your colleagues or clients may have of your late night work might do more damage than what you feel you are achieving by putting in all these extra hours. This podcast is being brought to you by the Bristol Group, which specializes in soft skills training in time management, project management, and business communication skills, as well as understanding Bitcoin and the blockchain, all that craziness. The Bristol Group delivers workshops on-site, online, and through individual private coaching. For more information, check out their website at www.bristol.com. That's B-R-I-S-T-A-L-L.com. And follow them on Twitter at Bristol Group. Presenteeism. A similar concept that reflects many of the problems of a high-pressure, no-time workplace can be seen in the condition called presenteeism. This was identified by Manchester University professor Gary Cooper, and it refers to a marked reduction in productivity due to stress, injury, or information overload. But in contrast to absenteeism, where an employee stays home, With presenteeism, the employee comes back to work while sick or while stressed or while distracted because of perhaps a heightened fear of losing their job or simply the fear of falling behind on their schedule. It is a perverse expression of commitment. Obviously, such a condition highlights the schism between what the body needs and what the work schedule demands, and it is an impediment to clear thought, productivity, and communication. Yet people still come to work and they still occupy space. So consider presenteeism to be about being physically present, but mentally absent at work due to stress and overwork. These types of situations send strong signals, or at least they should, that time and rest are the essential ingredients of productivity. Your body is a strict creditor. It takes back what it needs regardless. So, the next time that you feel ill, the next time that one of your colleagues appears stressed, stop and consider Would it make more sense for this individual or for you to go home, 
rest and recuperate and come back fully engaged, fully prepared and fully capable? Or would you rather soldier on, slog on at a vastly reduced mental and physical capacity, just simply in the interests of FaceTime? Once again, just like with workaholism, the question becomes one of quality over quantity. And this leads us rather easily into the final component of this podcast, which is the law of diminishing returns as applied to work and life. Economics 101 describes the law of diminishing returns as a point at which any more resources added to a process actually results in lowered production. In other words, there's only so much energy, money or material that you can throw at a problem or an issue before it becomes wasteful. I see this all the time with people at work. Here are four examples of the law of diminishing returns. Number one, perfectionism. In an attempt to balance out the loss of control people feel due to overwork and due to perhaps an unmanageable influx of messages and expectations, many people become rampant perfectionists, unable to determine when a task is complete enough or good enough. Time is wasted as they add more to an already appropriate product. It is far more effective to seek excellence than it is perfection, because excellence comes from planning, preparing, producing, reviewing, and revising, ideally over a period of time that includes breaking away from the task and returning to it refreshed later. Perfection is an ideal that cannot be fully attained and becomes, again, wasteful. It's throwing good money after bad. It's throwing good energy after it's no longer needed. Number two is delegation, or the lack thereof. People tend to refuse to delegate out of fear. The fear of the task being done to a lower standard by someone with less experience. Although it is correct to recognize that no one can do your task to the level of expertise that you have attained, it becomes wasted effort when someone exists who could be doing the work but is not allowed to do so. Delegation is an act of education. It is a multi-step process in which the student gradually takes more and more of the responsibility for a task with each passing iteration. Delegation takes time, and it also takes the willingness for you to budget your own time to come in and finish off. But that finishing off time becomes shorter and shorter as the student owns more and more of the ability. But without delegation... You are stuck doing a task that prevents you from doing better and more lucrative or more satisfying things. Not to mention the fact that delegating a task to an individual gives that person greater incentive to stick around. You might feel that jobs are hard to come by, but there is a very highly mobile workforce of all ages currently, and people cost money. It costs money to onboard someone to train them and get them into your organization. If they become bored or feel stifled, they are very much more likely to want to move on, or at least to go back to the presenteeism stage of just putting in the time without the quality attached. So by delegating, not only do you free yourself up for more valuable work for yourself, more satisfying work for yourself, you also give another person an opportunity to stretch, to grow, and to stick around. It's a double win. So the third of our four examples of the law of diminishing returns, then, is once again email and messaging. 
The false urgency of email forces people to create thousands of unnecessary extra emails per year. This is energy and time that could be better used in either live conversation, face-to-face or over the phone, or in simply reducing the number of emails that are sent and accepted. We have grown into a culture of emails because they seem to be free. They cost nothing to send and receive, if you look at it solely from an IT perspective. But quite frankly, they cost millions, billions of dollars in wasted time and effort every single year. They have a very high postage rate that is greater than the value of the messages inside, generally speaking. And finally, the fourth of our Law of Diminishing Returns examples is once again a return to workaholism to simply say once again, it is an addiction to busyness, which is not the same thing as productivity or effectiveness. I have already explained how workaholism works, of course, but the last thing I want to say here is that workaholics tend to find their energy from a wellspring of anger, not of true productivity or enthusiasm. That's an interesting concept to mull over. In all of these cases, energy is being poured into activities without yielding satisfactory return. That is, of course, the point of this, the law of diminishing returns. Energy must be conserved. Hunting animals know this. Energy is used in sprint mode, but it doesn't last long. And once it's gone, it is gone. So the cheetah, for example, may be the world's fastest land animal, but only, only for short periods of time. It has to choose to expend its energies very wisely. So people who are able to step back and observe their activities in a Kaizen or continuous improvement mindset are far better able to see this. They are self-empowered to assign their resources to their best time of day and to decline or delegate those activities that do not yield sufficient excellence to meet this law of diminishing returns threshold. So there you have it, our podcast on workaholism, work, and priority. If you have a comment about our little show or a question you would like answered in a future episode, please do let me know. You can drop me a line through the contact form on my webpage, which is steveprentice.com, S-T-E-V-E-P-R-E-N-T-I-C-E. You can follow me on Twitter through my full name, at Stephen Prentice, S-T-E-V-E-N-P-R-E-N-T-I-C-E. And you can even support us on Patreon if you'd like to. We have some really great deals for uh, the higher level monthly support, which allows for one-on-one coaching, which I think is a pretty good thing unto itself. All the details for this, once again, are on the podcast link at steveprentice.com. If you like this podcast, please consider subscribing via iTunes or Google. And please do leave me a review. Uh, The theme music for the show is from podcastthemes.com. And the show is sponsored by the Bristol Group, providers of time management, project management, and business communication training for our busy working world. So until next time, I'm Steve Prentice. Thanks for listening.